This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley back home now after a very jolly time in brighton with the labor party carrying out the sort of hard-hitting political journalism you'd expect fresh fruits a little bit of fish Fish and cheese. Fish and cheese. Look at that. I'm not sure about catching on. It's going to be. Is that is that a a new thing? We're changing labour. Fish fish and cheese. (laughs) I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to do. Ian cheated. You did not go around the full. There's an argument in the foyer of the Labour Party conference, and it's not about politics. It's about the egg and spoon race. Pocus, pocus. I'm a diplodocus. The Shadow Attorney General chasing Charlotte Ivers through the exhibition. Ed Miliband, what are you having for breakfast? I mean, me of all people, I'm not sure I should be speculating. It's a radio, it's a radio. I'm not, I'm not filming or taking photos well, of you yeah, eating. I mean, should I say bacon sandwich? Now we're talking a Donald, Donald Trump toilet brush with his hair very much as the brush. How much is that going to set us back? Uh, it's a bit more like £6.50. £6.50. Has it been used? Probably. We are a second-hand store. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take, I'll take, this is what I'm reduced to. <laughs> Andy Burnham's photographer. There we are. There we go. Oh, that way. Oh, yeah. Let's go. Should we go around that corner? Do you want to go on and have another? Do you want a picture? Oh, yes. Go on and have your photo. It's not reduced to is taking photos of Andy Burnham. Running down the far end. Oh, <laughs> just, I just bumped into someone. Round the NFU. Round the NFU. Still nobody's dropped. Still nobody's dropped, but it is neck and neck. Mari's just. Mari's just ahead. Could this be a win for the journalist? And yes, it's a win for Mario Aurora. So, a triumph, a triumph. I look absolutely insane, but hey, it works. Fresh fruits, a little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. Fish and cheese. Fish and cheese, look at that. Cheese and fish, wow. Now, I'm not saying I've picked up a bad cold during the conference season, but don't be surprised... If at some point during the podcast I go the full Theresa May with a coughing fit while the set falls down and somebody gives me my P45. Uh, basically, there's a very strong possibility that uh, today's episode will be... <coughs> Public sector working together. <coughs> why, <coughs> why we will never... <coughs> and we... <coughs> <coughs> but I've got Philip Hammond on standby to pass me lozenges throughout the morning. I mean... He's not doing anything else these days, is he? Right, coming up then today, in our big thing on the podcast, 
Crisis, what crisis? Lots of people comparing what's happening right now with the winter of discontent in 1978-1979 when a shortage of lorry drivers contributed to chaos in Britain. Something that Jim Callaghan dismissed, although he never actually used the words uh, crisis, what crisis. We'll speak to one of Jim Callaghan's advisers, Tom McNally, and the son's Trevor Kavanagh on that extraordinary period in political uh, life in Britain, which still has such an impact on politics today. That's coming up in a moment. First, it's our columnist panel, and it's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. Uh, let's start by talking about the story which is sort of dominated, uh, and rightly so, uh, the, the case of Sarah Everard and those extraordinary personal family statements that were given to the uh, court of the Old Bailey uh, yesterday. Sarah Everard's mother saying she was tormented at the thought of what her daughter went through. Um, the family uh, telling Wayne Cousins to look at us. Uh, as they they laid out the impact his actions had had, it's it's just it's something. India reading that yesterday and the case being laid out somehow it was all even more harrowing and awful than we thought before. Yeah, it's it's one of those stories that's just sort of too much, isn't it? It's I, I think everybody this morning is feeling so distressed. Um, well, distressed actually for themselves, but also particularly for poor Sarah Everard's family. I mean, those those statements were uh, incredibly powerful and kind of indelibly memorable. Really, it's just it's just I don't even, I don't know what to say. It's just beyond upsetting, beyond upsetting. And I hope he gets a full life tariff. I mean, it would be pretty extraordinary uh, if he if he did if he didn't, yeah. James, have you been affected? I mean, it was a daft question, really, but the, the, there's something about the impact of the family and their... I mean, this is still a relatively new phenomenon. It feels like, maybe it isn't, but the, the family's being able to, in a case like this where he has pleaded guilty, but still the case is set out for the court and, and still the court and the the perpetrator gets to hear from the family. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just horrible. I kind of feel I kind of feel like India. I just you know I I can hardly you know hardly better think about it, let alone you know trying to find say anything about it. But it, it is it is awful, um, and especially I mean the other kind of really horrible, weird modern phenomenon about it is that there's just so much sort of um, so much kind of bits of CCTV footage and stuff. Um, you know the horrible mm. pictures of the car speeding on the motorway, um, and it's just I don't know. It's just sort of it's really upsetting that we almost you know i mean obviously it's been helpful to you know to you know find out who did it but it's sort of awful that we have to you know see all this kind of stuff and that you know you can't you know you can't go into the internet without seeing these various pictures of it all happening because there are just so many cameras everywhere now um and it almost just you know that makes me think it's crazy that it it did happen that you know despite being watched by all these kind of cameras and stuff um and on the border point um uh india with this discussion actually about the culture within the Met and police in general. Mm. Uh, we were speaking to a, f- um, uh, a former Met superintendent uh, a few minutes ago. And, yes, I heard. And so this isn't, he's not just a bad apple. He's not actually a former police officer at all. And those trying to uh, dismiss him as such as, you know, uh, nothing, nothing to do with us, Gov. Actually, mm. the record of the police, the language of the police, uh, the culture... It's just appalling in lots of cases. I'm not, you know, and again, not trying to tarnish everyone, but the the institutional culture in the police uh, yes, has the been exposed that, by this case too. 
the idea that somebody, the, the idea that colleagues would call him the rapist and that calling somebody the rapist was considered funny, banter, you know, that, that kind of terrible, incredibly indicative word that's never, that never makes anybody feel comfortable. Um, I think those attitudes are present. I mean, obviously, it's calamitous that they're present in the Met and the police generally. Um, but I think we shouldn't forget that they're sort of present throughout society. Um, and I've been, I was thinking about this overnight and I was thinking, you know, we all, I think it's a truth that very few people acknowledge, particularly people who consider themselves good people or kind of morally pure or intelligent. You know, we all hold views or go along with tropes that are, in fact, quite questionable. They're not even views. Often they're things we've always thought for as far back as we can remember or things we were brought up thinking. And I think somewhere in there, there's the question of how we view the roles of men and women and what we are, what we turn a blind eye to or shrug at or go, oh, he's just being blokey. Or, you know, I think all of that stuff we sh it would serve us well to constantly kind of reevaluate it uh, and not also you know i really i feel quite strongly about this and the media i think is very large parts of the media are, are guilty of this not dismiss any attempt at everybody being treated with respect as wokery or or mm. coming from snowflakes a lot of that stuff is really is really good and sane and decent and we laugh at it much too easily and much too defensively i think because it pushes buttons that we don't like being pushed there's also something james about and i think particularly men in this situation start you start reflecting actually you've been in situations where things have been said that ultimately you're not comfortable with but bluntly actually in some of these cases big burly men in your company who you know you don't feel particularly mm -hmm. comfortable confronting but then you are complicit in the cult precisely the culture that ends up leading to ter terrible things like this yeah although you know i kind of you say that and then i kind of i kind of struggle to think of instances like that and it does kind of um from what india says it kind of makes me think that hopefully you know gradually generationally um things 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 are changing and you know i mean I, you know i'm you know i do find a lot of the kind of a lot of kind of um, angry internet work stuff gets on my nerves. But oh, it is too, the kind too. of, I think India's correct to say that it's sort of, you know, just because bits of it annoying doesn't, are annoying doesn't mean um, that there isn't a sort of underlying social change towards the better, hopefully, um, which it's, you know, which it's a kind of an, an irritating part of. Um, because, yeah, I sort of think like, I can't, you know, I really struggle to think of sort of situations in which... Um, in, in in which that's in which that's happened to me with people my age and i mean i'm sure it's a particular kind of you know sort of social circles and background that I, I move in but it does i don't know it makes me think that you know if, if i'd be you know sort of if i was 30 years older or something or 20 years older i wonder if that would have been the case and i wonder if maybe there is some progress hopefully i think there yeah, is you'd, you'd hope so but probably not at the 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 rate that it needs to be and you see but i suppose you see it don't you, you know whether it's people posting appalling things on Twitter, you know, with their own names on it, um, you know, apparently unembarrassed about um, about doing all of that. And I, it's, it's just one of those terrible things in India. I don't, I don't really know what to say. Well, yes, there's a kind of performative swagger. I mean, you know, God, entire new TV stations have been launched on the premise that, that the swaggering premise that anybody 
quote marks woke is 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 risible and ridiculous and absurd and babyish and pathetic. So so there is a certain kind of, but I do think it's enti- almost entirely defensive. There is a there is a kind of horrible macho, although I don't think it's actually very masculine, but you know, posturing as macho pride in people saying quote the unsayable or you know telling it as it is. But I do think that is quite generational. I think James is right. I think it, and you know, looking at my own children, my own children who are my older children who are twenty five and twenty eight would not countenance some some blokey man saying something horrendous without challenging it. I don't think. I don't think. But, but I suppose it's, it's tricky. If you're a twenty something new recruit to the Met Police and you arrive in a locker room where there is this culture and this quotes banter amongst older you know older men and you know physically intimidating men sometimes too it's a very different i think it's a very difficult uh situation you can find yourself um uh put in but we'll 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 wait to see what happens with the the sentencing of of wayne cousins uh later and i'm sure um lots of people have got uh thoughts on what we've been on what we've been discussing. Let's turn our attention to um uh politics uh, uh james keir starmer's speech yesterday uh, did you did you make it to the end? Almost, almost. Um, I, I kind of got a certain way through, and then I started skipping around a bit, uh, which is one of the privileges of watching it on YouTube, I think. And I decided to take advantage of that privilege. Uh, and what did you make of what you did see? Yeah, I thought it was. Um, I mean, I watched a, I watched a, you know, I watched a pretty hefty chunk of it, and I thought within the limits of Keir Starmer and what Keir Starmer is capable of, I imagine that is pretty much as good as it's going to get. I quite liked especially um, some of the kind of shoutier, angrier bits. I thought he managed to probably almost the first time really, you know, really properly communicate passion that felt like it hadn't quite been focus grouped. And he actually did have a bit of sort of oomph behind him. Uh, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of Auden. So I was glad to see Auden quoted there. That always gladdens my oh, heart. You know, James, you can't really. was terrible. <laughs> well, well, you know, um, I, I, I once thought of trying to write a piece about politicians quoting poetry, but I was, I was, I think, there wasn't much enthusiasm for that. So I'm always, I always, you know, if someone's going to quote a poet, I'm, you know, they've warmed my heart and I'm on side already. Um, yeah. The I, first... think, I think the key thing is if you're going to quote poetry, you need to read it like you're reading poetry. You can't read it like you're reading the speech. Yeah, your office I don't written. know. I mean, I'm not sure Keir Starmer was, was, was blessed with God by the voice that's capable of reading poetry. I, it's not really... I just think it's within the, um, his um, within his vocal talents, is it really? This sadly. is him talking about the beauty of skilled work, how beautiful it is, that eye-on-the-object look. And he just kept on using this phrase, the eye-on-the-object look. Yeah, that was wasn't a very sure poetic anyone... phase. He did kind of take the poem and turn it into, it did sound a bit like a, you know, kind of uh, business report, didn't it? But I mean, the, the intention was there. The intention was there. My favourite poet, quoted in a speech, uh, makes it... I'm not going to let. I'm, I'm, I mean, know, it's a niche audience, but at least me. he's won you. He won't. Yeah, he um, won't over the poetry <laughs> fans. I'm sure that's going to be massive for him. Yeah, that's that, that's what's going to turn it. What about what about you, India? Um, I was quite cheered by it actually, having been quite rude about him last week. I thought he got the message. I, I think he only had to get. To, this is not to the people in the audience. This is to to to, to the public, to the people at home. I think what anybody, even somebody who isn't particularly interested in politics, who just sort of catches snippets here and there, I think the message that they will have got was that the age of Corbyn is over and the age of Tony Blair is kind of on the up. And it was, I think, vital that he get that across. He was hugely helped by the hecklers, 
I have to say, the hecklers were like a sort of gift from above. Um, and in closing them down, I mean, I liked what he's, I can't remember the exact words, but, you know, he said something like, you shout all you like, but, you know, are we actually going to change people's lives? Um, I thought that was quite good. I thought he conveyed his point. He really needs a kind of sub-editor, whatever the speech equivalent of oh, a sub-editor. Yes. It went on and on and on. It was about an hour and a half, wasn't it? But I thought it was competent. He is not an orator. Uh, and he doesn't speak particularly well, but I thought it did the job. There yeah, is no, more I job should, to I, be done, but I thought I it had began this conversation the on on the Twitters yesterday about it being too long, and people say, "Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter uh, because it's only about the clips on the news." I said, "But the trouble is, he, he basically missed uh, the lunchtime mm. news, mm. Uh, so you know, even on his own uh, test, or at least they managed, to, you know, they managed to get some clips on the news, but not necessarily bits." Uh, the bits that he wanted. And also, I just think there wasn't that much in it, content-wise, in the, you know, oh, yes, you had a mum and a dad, right, we've got, you know, we've understood that. that I mean, that doesn't make you unique. In fact, it's the very opposite of unique, but that's fine. Um, a very tortuous metaphor about tools, fine. Mm. But actually, I think you're right, James. I thought the punchy political bits were the best bits we got there in the sort of first 10, 15 minutes. He went after them on fuel, a good attack line on Boris Johnson, mm. and that sort of... And and then, you know, distancing himself from the Corbyn era. Big round of applause for the Blair era. Job done, really. I'm not sure we needed the um, uh, the full family tree all laid out, but um, maybe I'm just being cynical because I've, I've sort of heard and read it several times before. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. Boris Johnson's never had to lay out, you know, if only. I mean, it would take more than an hour and a half if he laid out his full <laughs> family circumstances. <laughs> but that's not, you know, whenever a leader starts doing their most personal speech yet, I just think that's never made the blindest bit of difference. Yeah, it is weird, isn't it? And I wonder, yeah, why, why do we expect that? Who's telling him that that's going to, that's going to make a difference? Because... You know the, um, the the you know the Piers Morgan interview where he got you know the kind of where he led up the full family backstory and his dad never saying he was proud of him and stuff. Did anyone work out that that made the blindest bit of difference? I mean, it wasn't particularly well watched, was it? And uh, I don't know. I wonder yeah. has someone why 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 does this keep having to be the thing that he's talking about? Does I think it actually work? To, to bring it up because he seems quite bland and characterless, and he needs anecdotes that kind of situate him very clearly as occupying a position and coming from a place. But I think you're right. I don't know how memorable those anecdotes really are because as Matt says, effectively he's saying, I had a mum and a dad and they worked hard and I loved them. You know, yeah, good, nice. But, you know, we've all heard it before. Yeah. But I, I thought I, he I, did I, well. Yes, I thought I thought against his own you know, sort of checklist, I thought it was... Uh, it, 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 it didn't fail in the way that it might have done. Mm. I think James makes a good point about how this might possibly get as good as it gets, but we'll see. Uh, just finally, James, we should talk about your column today, uh, just because you've been rude about architecture. Yeah, oh my God. Well, this is one of my kind of pet theories, so I'll try not to be... When I get into kind of pet theory territory, I think I start rambling on for ages and ages. So basically, it was a kind of... Uh, a sort of... A def not quite defensive contemporary architecture, but a sort of partial sticking up for um, because, well, something that I've always been fascinated by is quite how much people dislike contemporary architecture consistently and for decades when they're surveyed about it. I think it's usually about 70% of people say they prefer traditional buildings to modern buildings. Um, and I just think it's kind of this fascinating situation where has any society in history has have the kind of citizens of that society felt so alienated from the buildings they're surrounded by and are being built, you would imagine or hope in some way to represent the culture that they belong to. Um, so in this column, I was kind of um, 
speculating how strange this is and then kind of wondering whether it's really possible that all these kind of, you know, these kind of traditionalist critics of contemporary architecture, whether it's actually, whether it is actually the case that they would be able to build buildings that people would feel connected with and would respond to and that would sort of sum out some kind of, sum up some kind of national spirit as we believe the best architecture does. I mean, this kind of, you know, the famous example is Prince Charles's little village in Poundbury, which um, to me seems quite creepy. And reading, reading, reading some of the reports of people who live there, I think some people who live there find it quite creepy. This little sort of doll's village with perfect um, houses that all look they were built three hundred years ago, but they're weirdly gleaming new and modern. Um, and I kind of, I don't know. I just kind of think I don't know what contemporary architecture would would work. And I kind of wonder if people who criticise it all the time, as you know, I have plenty of criticisms whether we should consider whether it's even possible to build good contemporary architecture. Slightly negative, uh, I'm afraid, with that one. Well, no, that's fair enough. India, where do you stand on this, um, uh, on James's latest pet theory? Um, I love contemporary architecture and I find it really thrilling. I think the problem is, as James says in his column, that that so much of what is built now is a kind of pale, feeble, unbold, unbrave approximation, kind of watered-down pap. If you could have buildings made out of watered-down pap, which you can't. But anyway, you know, very, very, very kind of not really trying very hard. And so I'm not at all surprised that people would rather live live in a thatched cottage, in theory. Um, Thatched cottages, of course, come with their own problems. But, um, but, but, I, I think that uh, I used to ha- I used to have um, a stepfather who was uh, Norman Foster, a very well known architect. I think I think um, contemporary architecture can be really really thrilling, but there's very little thrilling being built in the UK at the moment, and it's a shame. And also, I blame town planning. Indian Art and James Marriott. Then, of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box up next it's crisis what crisis ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Yes, lorry drivers missing from the road, food shortages, bins uncollected. A government presiding over a crisis which threatens Christmas. Sound familiar? Well, this is actually the winter of 1978 and 79. 
The Bee Gees are number one. Happy Days is on the TV. And Jim Callaghan, the Labour Prime Minister of the day, has just returned from a sun-drenched summit in Guadeloupe and insisted there's no crisis. Your general approach and view uh, of the mounting um, chaos in the country at the moment? Well, that's a judgment that you are making. Um, uh, I promise you that if you look at it from outside, and perhaps you're taking a rather parochial view at the moment, I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Not mounting chaos. It led to the famous Sun headline, Crisis, What Crisis? Well, in a moment, we'll hear from Lord McNally. Jim Callaghan's spin doctor, who almost had his head in his hands after that uh, press conference, plus the political journalist Trevor Kavanagh, who was on The Sun at the time. But first, historian Alwyn Turner, author of Crisis, What Crisis? Britain in the 1970s, and what actually happened 43 years ago. The, 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 the problems have been building for a long time. I mean, it, it goes back to a, a rise in unofficial strikes in the late 1960s, which was when the Labour Party tried to deal with it and failed. And the issue over industrial relations was a very long-standing problem in, in British life. I think it had, it had kind of seeped its way into the culture, I think, by that stage. By, by the, the time you get to the mid-70s, it had become part of the way of life almost. And I think that's part of the problem, is, is that it, was, it just seemed inevitable in a way that it didn't anywhere else. We, we were losing much more, many more days in strike action than our competitors in Europe. It had become, I mean, as it was known uh, internationally, the English disease. This had become part of the, the kind of warp and weft of everyday life, as though, though it was inevitable and natural. And, and was that in part because of the politics of the day? It was a Labour government with a small majority with close ties and reliance on the unions. It was both parties, though, wasn't it? I mean, the, 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 the three big moments of disruption in, in the 1970s was the 1972 miners' strike, the three-day week at the beginning of 1974, and then the winter of discontent in 79. But the first two were under Edward Heath's government. And in the space of what he was in power for less than four years, he declared five states of emergency. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was not party-specific. And I think, actually, to some extent, that's why it has loomed so large ever since, is because there was an interest on both both wings of, 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 uh, of the political spectrum, the right wing of the Conservative Party under Keith Joseph and then his protégé Margaret Thatcher, and the left of the Labour Party, Tony Benn, both wished to blame all the problems on the centre, regardless of party. And uh, from both of those positions, it looked and was presented as though there was just a single entity um, that, that, that had run the country for, for 10 years. And so everything got kind of lumped together. And people now talk about, I remember the winter of discontent when the lights went out. Well, they didn't go out in the uh, winter of discontent. They did during the, uh, the three-day weekend during the 1972 miners' strike. But it's all, it's all becomes a single uh, amorphous lump, as it were. And I suppose the other thing is that because we're now talking about 43, 45, 50 years ago, the people who grew up remembering that tend to now be the people who are... Uh, seasoned voters, newspaper columnists, you know, even historians. And so those those sort of formative experiences um, are, are why it's now such a part of our um, political discussion. I, I think that's true. And, I mean, it, 
it did depend a bit on how old you were because I mean I, I was still at school when uh, the three-day week was happening and and uh, all those candles was terribly exciting when you were little not necessarily for our parents but it it, it was for us so there's there's some kind of uh, folk memory mixed into it but i think the other the other thing that is important about it in, and certainly in relation to what's happening now is that these were very concentrated periods of disruption the the, the, the winter of discontent was I mean it, it it starts really in January 1979. By mid February, all those strikes are over, so it's only a period of four to six weeks where it's disruptive. But in that time, it leaves 1979 as the worst day for days lost. Sorry, the worst year for days lost in strike action since the since the general strike of 1926. But it's all concentrated, and that's that's what really burns it into people's minds. I think. If, there's, just, if there are problems that, that turn up one at a time and there's a succession of crises and it lasts for a while, well, you adjust to things. But when it's a really, really intense period, I think that's the stuff that really connects and remains. And that's, that's, that's why these periods are still, um, still have some resonance and some power in the public imagination. The, what, yeah, what was the day-to-day day day, experience during that intense period, particularly in early 1979? What, in what ways were life affected? Because obviously at the moment we're talking about people can't get petrol. Maybe later on there might be um, shortages of Christmas turkeys and, and so on. Uh, what, what was it? That, 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 what was the impact on people's lives at that period? The, the, the winter of discontent, discontent really has two phases. The first one is at the end of 1978 and the fuel tanker drivers go on strike and then uh, right at the end of the year, um, lorry drivers generally go on strike, haulage drivers, and so there are food shortages. It's also important to remember it, this was a really, really cold winter. It was the coldest January since the big freeze of 1963, and so farms were already affected. There's a wonderful headline in The Guardian from, uh, from the time, the day that Brussels sprouts became a luxury. And there was an element of that, that even, you know, even seasonal vegetables were being affected by the weather. And then the second phase of the, the, the strikes were the ones in the public sector. And that's what we really hadn't experienced like this before. There had been strikes in public sector workers, but not coordinated and across the country. And so when you had hospital porters forming picket lines at hospitals determining who was going to be admitted... That, that made a difference. Um, you had school caretakers uh, taking industrial action and schools being closed. And so it was, it was those elements of everyday life that you couldn't avoid this anymore. It was, it was, it was not the lights going out, but it, it felt as if it was the basic services of society coming to an end and, and freezing. That was the historian Alwyn Turner, author of Crisis, What Crisis Britain in the 70s on what actually happened during the winter of discontent. Up next, we'll look at the political impact of what went on and the parallels with today. That's next on Times Radio. Mid-morning on Times Radio. That, that trial for Phil Williams show used the sound of me going in the centrifuge when I was training to go into space. I just got horrible flashbacks to being spun around at great speed. Anyway, it fills up from 7 o'clock today. Now, we're talking about the winter of discontent of 1978 to 1979, which saw trade union strikes and freezing winter storms, which led to food shortages 
and suffering across the country. It was a big turning point in British politics too. It's just a few months later, Jim Callaghan's Labour government fell to a vote of no confidence and Margaret Thatcher swept to power. This party political broadcast from 1979 saw a huge boost for the Tories in the polls that year. We've seen strikes called before agreements have ended. We've seen them used as a weapon of first resort, not as the last step after everything else has failed. We've seen industrial action directed straight at the public to make you suffer, directed even at the sick and the disabled. That sort of action damages the reputation of all trade unionists, most of whom wouldn't agree with it. So here we are, just two weeks into 1979, with some of our towns and cities, especially in the North and Midlands, looking as though they're under siege, with many people, the old and those with young children, suffering real hardship, some even without water, while export orders are locked in and food rots at the docks. Of course, the storm may blow itself out and things may start to get better. I hope with all my heart they do. But even if that happens, the underlying problems will still be there. And if the past is any guide, what's happened this winter could happen again next winter and the winter after that and so on. What we face is a threat to our whole way of life. Uh, that was Margaret Thatcher back in 1979. Does it sound familiar at all? Today's Times reporting the business secretary Kwasi Kwarteng admitted the country could be again hit by empty shelves, labour shortages and high prices this Christmas. And actually throughout the Labour Party conference, uh, repeatedly speakers uh, looked to hold the government responsible for the petrol and HGV driver crisis, joined parallels with the winter of discontent. Here's the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves. Conference... Just look at the state of things under the Tories. Empty shelves in our supermarkets, snaking queues at petrol stations, businesses waiting weeks for materials. The NHS forced to ration blood tests. Government having to issue reassurance that they can even keep the lights on. Real anxiety for families and for business. And Rishi Sunak, missing in action. This government, this government is incompetent. This government is in denial. This government are careless and they are chaotic and they are responsible for this mess. That was Rachel Reeves at the Labour Party conference. So is history really repeating itself? Obviously, the calls of the lorry driver shortages is different. Back in the 70s, the lorry drivers were on strike. Uh, today, they don't exist, which is a slightly harder thing to fix. But what was it really like politically? in the winter of discontent in 78 and 79. I'm joined by Lord McNally. Tom McNally, now a Lib Dem peer, first uh, previously a, a Labour MP, and an advisor to uh, Jim Callaghan uh, while all that was going on. Morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, we've also got Trevor Kavanagh, uh, a lobby veteran for The Sun, who was working on the uh, news desk at the paper when that famous headline was written, Crisis, what crisis? Morning, Trevor. Good morning. Uh, now, um, Tom, first of all, I, I, well, I feel a bit bad about this, but I feel like we need to slightly revisit it because having watched the footage repeated in the past couple of days, I could see you in the background. Uh, let me just play that clip again of Jim Callaghan uh, and then I'll, I'll ask you what was going through your mind when he was, he was trying to play down the crisis. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Uh, so, Tom, uh, I, I, could see, I could see a very uh, young Tom McNally in the background. What was going through your mind when the Prime Minister, your boss, returned from a, a sunny summit in Guadeloupe and said, no, not quite 
crisis, what crisis, but this is this is not chaos. Going through my mind was, this is not what we agreed to say. <laughs> I, I travelled over, I had come back overnight uh, with Jim uh, from the, the uh, conferences in the Caribbean. And um, we decided, um, I got to say against the advice of his then press secretary, Tom McCaffrey, to do a press conference at the airport because I thought what he would do there is kind of grab hold of the situation, say, I'm back, I'm in charge, I'm going to take uh, the, the, the deal with these matters. Instead of what, which, and, and this is great tribute to the Daily Mail, they'd managed to get a photograph taken at, I think it was 5,000 yards, the Secret Service told us, of Jim and I taking a dip in the Caribbean. And that had really got on in, under his skin, that he had actually been working hard in a conference on disarmament. Um, but he misread the, the mood at that press conference. Uh, and um, although, uh, as often with these great remembered sayings, he never did say crisis, what crisis, um, the, sun, the sun pretty well um, uh, caught the mood. And I've got to say that I thought Alwyn Turner's assessment of that whole period in the 70s was, was absolutely accurate. The, the trade unions then had more power and more influence than they'd ever had in their history. And they list, lost it over that winter of discontent. Trevor, how do, how do you remember that that time when you were at the Sun? Uh, and uh, you know, headlines get written of the Sun every day. Do you, when you saw the the crisis, what crisis on the front page? Did you think this is one that we'd still be talking about more than forty years later? No, but it does bring back very vivid memories about what was happening at that time. I was just back from <clears throat> I just brought my family back from sunny Australia where we've been living, and uh, they've never really forgiven me since that. Uh, in those days, the, the, the strikers, it wasn't just the coal miners, it was the post office workers, it was the steel workers, the water workers, everywhere, everyone was on strike. They were literally having a laugh at the uh, public's expense as far as we are concerned. They were turning down 25% pay rises, 30% pay offers, and simply going on strike almost willfully. And as Alwyn said, this was during a real winter. We used to have snow in those days. I remember trudging through six inches of snow because the mainline trains were on strike and walking miles to the nearest underground. And this was absolute misery, as we are also experiencing um, soaring inflation, which rose to a peak of around 25% in the end, when supermarket employees were running around with their rubber stamps, uh, changing the prices, literally as you were approaching to buy them. And this was also the time when I was I became the industrial correspondent for the Sun. And basically, it was a strikes correspondent. That's all you wrote about was strikes and looming strikes, strike threats. And so we lived in a sulfurous times. You could always taste the sulfur in the air. The mood, the public mood, as people queued in the snow for a bus that would arrive jam-packed and so there's no room to get on board, left to wait in the freezing cold because train drivers were on strike. This left a very deep and abiding impression. We are nowhere near that today. 
I suppose, uh, Tom McNally, the the. Uh, the, the the politics is obviously very different now, but also the practicalities are different. In the the reason we are we have a shortage of HGV drivers <coughs> is not because the HGV drivers themselves have gone on strike and are making uh, big uh, demands on on pay and so on. Do you think people get over you know carried away? Basically, if anything bad happens beyond you know from September beyond, it automatically gets painted as a new winter of discontent. Well, there will be a, a, a temptation for that, uh, and I, I, re- I agree um, with Trevor. We're, we're nowhere near the situation um, in, in um, the winter of seventy-eight, seventy-nine. It was a government in its last year of office um, with no majority. I mean, I will go to my grave believing that if Jim Callaghan had have gone on the fifth of October. Uh, 1978, he would have won that election. And I'd been part of a planning committee and one of our posters ready to go up all over the country was a a candle on a candlestick glowing in the dark with the line, remember the last time the Conservatives said they could work with uh, with the trade unions? The memory of Heath's experience uh, was still strong. But by the time Mrs. Thatcher made that broadcast, uh, which was a very powerful broadcast. There was scenes of grave diggers refusing to dig graves. Of uh, There is a very famous shot of Leicester Square full uh, of uncollected rubbish. Um, it, it, it was a real cul-de-sac. On the other hand, there are lessons to learn. Governments do rightly pay the price of incompetence and whatever they say the book stops with them so people if things don't work they will ask of the government what are you going to do about it and there is a whole list of things that are going to be asked this winter what are you going to do about it Uh, and the other thing is i would just give one quiet uh, advice of course the one place not to be um when the country is going through a crisis like this and a winter like that, is in the Caribbean, or for that yeah. matter, in India. I see that Boris is yearning to get out to India. I, there is something about being at that desk in Downing Street, which is important for the prime minister of the day to make the right judgments and for the government to feel confident that the prime minister is on top of the job. Trevor Cavanaugh, we've seen, because uh, there's, no, there's nothing new in politics, we've seen that more recently too, haven't we, when, I mean, particularly David Cameron, his probably roughest time as leader of the opposition was when he, were, he was in Rwanda and his constituency was underwater. There is something about, you know, and actually Dominic Raab, uh, another prime example, you know, yeah, argue about whether or not the sea was closed uh, while he was uh, overseeing the fall of Kabul. Yes, it's always dangerous for any political leader to be out of the country uh, uh, because there's always going to be a crisis that erupts and it always looks as if they're swanning around. Uh, recently, Boris Johnson was in New York for the United Nations and Laura Koonsberg accused him of basically enjoying uh, uh, standing on a skyscraper while people back home were queuing for petrol. But he was doing his job and uh, these are things prime ministers have to do. But I think that the difference between now and the winter of discontent is that we're in a much more finely balanced technological age in which so many things 
run on clockwork. And if the clockwork goes wrong, then everything goes wrong. And it isn't just Britain, although uh, Boris won't be excused for the fact that it isn't just Britain. The whole world is short of heavy goods vehicle drivers, uh, but it's also short of energy and the uh, enormous escalation in prices for gas and other supplies is hitting every country, including China. And I think here is the biggest threat to Boris and indeed other countries. It's the possibility of roaring inflation, a slump in growth, an economic decline with China leading the way where already they are applying power cuts across China because of shortage of fuel. They, may, they have none of their own. They have to import everything. And I think the serious problem at the heart of all this is soaring inflation. I think it is already taking off. And once it gets going, I think there's a, it's very, very difficult to stop. And it has an immediate effect on the uh, disposable income of ordinary voters, Tory, now Tory voters, and of course, Labour voters too. Uh, just both of you, I wonder if, I mean, you can say many things about Keir Starmer, but he's not Margaret Thatcher, and he'd probably take that as a compliment. But um, in order for this to have an impact politically, you probably do need a, a political opponent willing to and able to lay the punches on, on the government. I just wonder if if, if that's another difference today, uh, Tom McNally, first of all, that, that Jim, Jim Callaghan was up against a pretty formidable political opponent. Yeah, but don't forget, even at the general election of 1979, throughout that election, uh, Jim was ahead of um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher in the opinion polls. And the the image of Mrs. Thatcher, the Iron Lady, uh, was yet to come. Um, And I thought yesterday Keir Starmer made a a very sound speech. And, you know, I've just uh, been following the German... Uh, general election, where um, what might be called um, a solid citizen uh, was what uh, the Germans turned to. And I I think that Keir has, um, I think he put his finger on it, is that the Prime Minister can often appear trivial in his responses. And that's okay when things are going okay. But uh, as... as, um, was just pointed out, uh, these um, problems are going to be multiple and how the government goes through, the government is wandering out onto very thin ice on a whole number of issues. And I'm not making a party political point here. It's just, uh, uh, as has just been said, that we can see the problems coming down the line. And this is a real test of character for the Prime Minister of the day. It, Harold Macmillan's same famous response when somebody said, what keeps you awake at night? He said, events, dear boy, events. Well, we're going to have a winter of, <laughs> of, of events. And how um, the Prime Minister handles it uh, will be a big test, uh, which can often change with, with, with like a click of a switch, public opinion about him and his government. Uh, what do you think, Trevor? Well, I think that um, I'm not defending Boris here. I think that um, there is a, a genuine um, criticism about his apparent indecisiveness, his readiness to do U-turn after U-turn, <clears throat> to promise things he then doesn't deliver and so on. And also the simple lack of planning. 
but he has only been prime minister for two years. There was the pandemic and there has been a grotesque failure on the part of one government after another, Labour and Tory, to provide for the circumstances we now find ourselves in, which is basically a lack of energy that's available to, uh, to us here in Britain and not imported from abroad. He also has a public sector which, because of the pandemic, is basically working from home. And when they pull the strings or levers of power, there's no response. Um, and the, the other thing is that Keir Starmer is in a very difficult position. First of all, because I don't think he's a very persuasive figure as a potential prime minister, but that's uh, that, that cometh the hour, cometh the man, and who knows, he might prove something different. The other thing is that he's been left punching into thin air because Boris and the Tories, to the dismay of many Tories, has basically stolen all his thunder. Um, it's already spending more than uh, the Labour Party could uh, get away with and borrowing even more. And it's, it's piling the money into the National Health Service. So I'm not sure quite where the traction lies for Keir Starmer in, in landing punches on Boris and the government. That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.